the birth of Messiah, and, and so on. So in the days of the Messiah, here's the herald of the Messiah uh, who came. Luke, Luke is more detailed on history and historical background, and he gives the year. He says, John came in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. So you can go back in history. What was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar? It was A.D. 26. Then we have in verse Matthew gives us a summary of John's preaching, which is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Sunday we spent a little time talking about repentance. I think that's very important, so I want to review that tonight. Um, repentance is turning from sin to holiness and to fellowship with God. So it's turning from something and to something. Now, what a shock this message would have been to the Jews because it challenged their belief that they were already right with God. They didn't believe they needed repentance. They're, they're okay. They're right with God. They depended upon, they said, well, we are Jews, God's chosen people. Why should we repent? And then they said, well, then on top of that, we bring sacrifices to God. So we don't need repentance. They said, oh, and, and, and we try every day to keep the law of Moses. But the problem was their hearts, their hearts weren't right. And they were in the same condition as the pagan Gentiles. And John's going to say some things which exactly point them in that direction. So this big, big shock and their hearts weren't right. And I mentioned Sunday morning that there are three elements of repentance. And uh, it is written later on in your notes that you have tonight in the conclusion part. But what they are is an intellectual understanding that sin is wrong. That is an element of repentance, that we have this intellectual understanding. Eh? Sin, is not, sin is wrong before a holy God. Secondly, it's an approval from the heart and what's the heart? It's the mind, the emotions, and the will of the teaching of Scripture regarding uh, sin. And so there is the intellectual, but there's also the approval of the heart, our mind, emotions, and will. And then thirdly, there's a decision to turn from sin and to live a life of obedience to Jesus instead. Now, it's very important also to realize that repentance happens simultaneously with our putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And uh, repentance happens simultaneously. As I said, Wayne Grudem, we're using his systematic theology book and our Sunday school study on systematic theology. He says, quote, when we turn to Christ for salvation from our sins, we are simultaneously turning away from the sins that we are asking Christ to save us from. And uh, so repentance and faith, though, we also have to realize, are not just at the beginning of our Christian life, but they are to be heart attitudes that uh, are to continue once we have come in repentance and faith 
that hard attitude of repentance and faith is to continue until the Lord takes us home. And we'll talk some more about that later. That comes to just about where the trouble started last, uh, last Sunday. I'll never forget that. Okay, number three, John's purpose. Look at verse three. For this is he, speaking of John, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. So we've already seen he was spoken of by Malachi, but he was also spoken of Isaiah uh, when he said, so he points out Isaiah 700 years. Malachi was 400 years before John. Isaiah is 700 years before John. And turn over to Isaiah 40. This prophecy from 700 years before from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, concerning John the Baptist. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4. A voice cries in the wilderness. Sound familiar? Matthew is quoting that. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Now, you'll notice Matthew only quotes verse 3, but we'll talk about verse 4 uh, in a moment. But so, and as Matthew quotes it, turning back to Matthew 3, the voice of one. Now, John's mission is uh, uh, to serve as the voice of God. The voice of God had been heard by the Jewish people throughout their history through God's prophets that he sent. But for 400 years from Malachi on, there were no prophets. The voice of God was silent of new revelation from prophets. But that's why Matthew says it's so significant that as Isaiah said, a voice came. is the voice of God through a prophet. And uh, that voice, again, had been silent for 400 years. And then it says he was crying. Uh, the, that word pictures urgent shouting. It's kind of like I, I, saying he was commanding the people to repent. We've all heard a person who is just really feeling something inside, and they just strongly call out a command. And, and that's how John was as he was preaching. And so he's crying in the wilderness. And uh, fr uh, Sunday we talked about the wilderness because it was mentioned in verse 1, but I won't take time to go through that here. Uh, so he's crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. That is, get the road ready for the, tri for the king to travel on it. That's what a herald normally did. He's on this road, the king's going to be coming on the road, and he says, the king's on his way, the king's coming, we need to get this road ready. It has some potholes, they need to be filled in. It has this, it has that. that we want the way of, of the king to be smooth, and so prepare the way of the Lord. But when John quotes this verse, he's not quoting it in the sense that it's talking about a road. It's not a physical road through the countryside. 
John is talking uh, as he's saying this, and the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew, uh, the direction he's going, John is really talking about prepare not the road, but prepare hearts. And you remember, began the message Sunday morning by starting with, with the words from joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth prepare. And that's what John is, is, is uh, saying here. So he's commanding the people to prepare their hearts for the Messiah's coming. It is a, a striking, striking message. Then he continues in verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. Now Isaiah, when he was speaking and writing this, he was using the personal name of God, Yahweh. And uh, uh, that uh, is uh, the very significant name in in. Scripture In the Old Testament, this is presented as God's holy name. But John, he's applying this to Jesus. John is recognizing that Jesus is not just a man. He is God. God come in human flesh. And so when John quotes this, prepare the way of the Lord, and he's talking about Jesus. It is very significant, the terminology that he uses. In John's mind, Jesus is God. Jesus is Yahweh. And uh, in Matthew's mind, as he writes this, he's, he's seeing that as well. So prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, I'm using the ESV. <clears throat> Many of you are using the ESV translation. The ESV translates from the Hebrew. Every, every uh, verse in the Old Testament that was originally written in Hebrew is translated from the Hebrew. There are a few verses uh, in Daniel and so on that are written in Aramaic, and those are translated, but, but certainly all of Isaiah is translated from Hebrew. And Isaiah 40, verse 3, a good translation of the Hebrew is, as, as we have quoted here, make straight um, in, in the desert a highway for our God. But Matthew, interestingly enough, as under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he is writing, he quotes this not from the Hebrew, but as what, what is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek, which was the common language spoken throughout the world starting prior to the time of Christ. And uh, Matthew quotes it from, from the Septuagint. And there are a few differences that come out between the, the Septuagint and the Hebrew. And... Uh, uh, so he's quoting it, and that's why uh, in, in our Bible it, uh, it, it reads a little different. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now when he says make his paths straight, that means no deviation from righteousness. God is righteous, his word is righteous, and so he says, this path of your heart for the Messiah to come on, 
needs to be absolutely conformed uh, to righteousness. Now then, in Isaiah 40, verse 4, that Matthew does not quote, uh, he continues, every mountain and hill shall be made low. That's speaking about pride. Pride is pictured as a mountain and, and, and so on, and, 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 and the hill that's kind of raised up. The Bible often speaks of pride as kind of being raised up. That needs to be straightened out. That needs to be cut off. He's pointing out to the condition of sinful hearts that are filled with pride. And uh, so uh, he, he uh, wasn't talking about literal roads. Again, he's talking about people's hearts. Clear them from the obstacles of their pride, but also sin. You could see that this would be speaking of sin as well. So this is an amplification of his talking about repentance, repenting from sin and faith to Christ. That brings us to a very unique verse, verse four, John's appearance. Now the interesting thing about John, he does not dress or eat like other religious leaders. Those religious leaders in Israel in those days were well-dressed. They were well-fed. They were sophisticated. They were the sophisticated people of the land. Jesus, John's appearance doesn't look sophisticated. And it doesn't look like he's well-fed and he's well-dressed. Uh, he is uh, very, very, very different. And the point is, that he's is really pointed out here, that his appearance and his diet reminds you of who many consider the greatest prophet before him, and that's Elijah. And so let's let's see this this appearance. It says um, he wore a garment of camel's hair. Uh, camel's hair. Now that's similar to what Elijah wore. We're told that. It seems such an insignificant detail, and yet we're told that in 2 Kings 1.8. So it's kind of interesting that um, he's wearing something like that. Then it's also interesting in Zechariah chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, suggests that a camel hair garment may have been, by the time of John, identified with the office of the prophet. You know, King Charles when he was um, crowned and everything in, in England recently, you know, he was put, the, the king's robe was put on him. And that no one else wears that, and that is identified with the king. Well, there's this hint in Zechariah that after the time of Elijah, prophets could, were identified by wearing like Elijah did, uh, a garment of camel hair. But it's interesting also there was a practical reason why uh, John, in his case, he's, he's living a rustic life. He, I mean, he's out in the wilderness. He's not uh, near Costco or anything like that where he can go get clothes. Um, he has to make do with what's available. There's a practical use for it. Camel skin was very durable leather that many, many people in the Middle East used were making their clothes. And then on top of that, it lasts longer 
Uh, even though it wasn't the latest in fashion, it lasted longer, and that was important. And on top of that, uh, you know, it wasn't very comfortable. They didn't wear it for comfort. But it's also interesting, we're told that a camel skin garment like this would be uh, water resistant, waterproof. What did John do in the water? He baptized. He's wearing this. It's, it's just unique, you know, <laughs> that he would be wearing something that is waterproof. Um, and then on top of that, it could protect him from the weather. So it was very practical, but it was so unique. And it's showing he's not looking like the elites in Jerusalem. He's different. And uh, he's there for God's purpose. And so Matthew points out what he was wearing. But then there's his diet continues in verse 4. And his food was locusts. Now... I don't think I've ever eaten locusts, but do I remember right that some of my grandkids who were here one time, you had some locusts that you were offering to eat. And I don't remember if I ate it or not, but I know you guys did, because you can, you can get locusts today that are prepared to eat. But in those days, it was a common food out in the wilderness. Now, some people have looked at that and they know that in the Old Testament kosher laws, most insects were not allowed. They were not kosher. But locusts and grasshoppers were. And uh, otherwise, John would not have eaten them. But uh, it was, they were nourishing. And uh, even today, they are cooked in oil and they are salted with their legs and wings removed and uh, eaten in times of famine still, in, still today in the Middle East. And then they are collected, dried, and ground into flour, and they can be kept a long time. So that was one part of his meal, gave him some protein. But then also honey, but it's called wild honey. Didn't go to the store and get a jar of honey. He got the wild honey. It came from uh, where bees bees had, had collected, and there's a honeycomb. And just to take the honeycomb out, and it's dripping with honey. And uh, everyone says that honey is nourishing and a, a very, very healthy food to eat. So that was that was his diet. But the but the whole importance of that is that his diet and his clothes were a rebuke to the self-indulgent religious leaders of Israel. Over and over again in the Old Testament prophets, they are speaking against the religious leaders who they have just made themselves rich and fat and uh, just wearing the finest of clothes at the expense of the people. But here's John, God's man, so different. But then we come in verses 5 and 6 to John's results. Look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem, now the elite of the Jewish religious society, lived in Jerusalem. And many of them looked down on Galilee, Nazareth. Remember how they would say, can any good thing come from Nazareth? But the elite 
lived in Jerusalem. So this is remarkable. Even the elite, then uh, Jerusalem and all Judea, that's the uh, area around Jerusalem and all the region about the Jordan, that's the Jordan River, were going out to him. It was just attracting all of these people. Now, there were plenty of common people, too. Uh, we read in John's Gospel that uh, Andrew was there and Peter were there. They were just common laborers, fishermen, and so on. So plenty of those people. But Matthew says that it's kind of unique that even the elite were coming. And so they were coming out to him. Then in verse 6, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. The word baptized or baptism means total immersion in water. You know, many people uh, have a ceremony of baptism, which is sprinkling some water. But that doesn't fit the term baptism. Baptism or baptize means to immerse, to put something totally under the water. In, in some Greek literature, it's used in the sense of sink, like a ship sinks, well, the whole thing goes under the water. So a person who is baptized goes under the water. Now, what was the significance of this? Remember, uh, the, all of this is shocking to the Jewish religious leaders. This is completely different from the Levitical washings that they were very zealous to do from the Old Testament law. There, were, there are a number of times when you're reading in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy where it talks about different ceremonial washings. Uh, for instance, a woman every month after her monthly period would need to go through a ceremonial washing. Uh, if you touched a dead body, you had to go through a ceremonial washing. You have sin, you have to go through a ceremonial washing. And so, who knows how many times you might do that in your life? Hundreds of times. But this is completely different because it is a one-time event. It is the only one-time washing that uh, was performed in the Old Testament law, and it wasn't for Jews. It was for Gentiles. When a Gentile would come to faith and believing and repentance in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they would be brought to a pool of water or a lake or something, and they would be totally submerged. submerged. That's a Gentile thing. The Jewish people would say, that's not for us. We don't need that. We're not Gentiles. It's for those, because it signifies those who are outside of the Jewish faith. And it's signifying that uh, they are now coming to the true faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, this would be a very startling admission for a Jew to say they are as spiritually bankrupt as a pagan. But John says, that's the only way you will come into the kingdom of heaven 
is coming, recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy. That's why in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus gives the Beatitudes, and, and he starts, blessed are those that mourn. They, they recognize their sin. And, and that's tied up with what these people are doing uh, as well. So a Jewish person perceived this baptism, John's baptism, as a radical act of acknowledging that they are not depending on their Jewishness. They had to really have a big change in their thinking uh, to think that. And uh, today, we have something similar in Christendom. Uh, I use Christendom in the word of speaking to all, all who claim to be Christians um, because many in Christendom will say, are, are, you ask, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, how do you know? Well, my parents were Christians. I'm from, I'm from a Christian home. Or, or, or all kinds of things like that. Or I go to church and so on. But this baptism for these people is to recognize, I don't get into heaven because my parents were Christians. I have to repent and trust Christ and be born again will come out later. Well, later, of course, Jesus will commission the disciples to go into the world, the entire world, and preach the gospel and make disciples. And he will say, baptizing them or immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so that is not quite the same as John's baptism and the point of it, but it's, it's very similar in that for the believer, it's saying, I'm renouncing my old life, just like for these people, they were renouncing their Judaism as something that would save, a, save them. So for a person who becomes a Christian, they're saying, I renounce my old life and I have put on the new life of Christ. And uh, for those who believe in Christ are to be baptized in the name, the singular name, three persons, but one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And baptism signifies death to their whole way of life. A good reference on that is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. And, and then Matthew adds, they were being baptized, confessing their sins. They recognized that they had a sin problem that needs to be taken care of by the blood of the Lamb of God. And you remember it was here at the Jordan while John was baptizing that those that were around him, all of a sudden he looked over there and he saw Jesus coming. And he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so these people, they're preparing their hearts. Messiah has come and they are repenting and they are believing in Christ and they are being baptized and confessing their sin. Well, I have some things I want to say in conclusion. First of all, just to make the emphasis that John was mightily used of the Lord 
And he was truly great, just like Jesus said. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, Matthew 11, 11. So he truly was great. But it's interesting that he had an important purpose in God's plan of redemption, which was to announce the king. But he didn't act kingly. That was one of the things that shown up in his clothing and his food. King didn't wear camel's hair garment. He didn't eat locusts. So he, he's not acting kingly. And you remember John's attitude. He says in John 3, 3.30 about Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. He was faithful in serving the Lord. Now, John cried out, as we saw, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I have to ask all of us who are here, plus those who are watching on the live stream, uh, have you repented as, as the command went out to repent? Do you have an intellectual understanding that sin is wrong? Do you agree with the teaching of scripture regarding sin? Have you turned from sin and turned to a life of obedience in Jesus Christ? And then you need to do the next step in John's message, which is prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Uh, don't let your pride and your sin keep you from crying out to the Lord in your spiritual bankruptcy. Lord, save me a sinner such as I. So turn to the Lord today. If you have not come to the Lord in repentance, turn to the Lord today in repentance and put your trust in Christ and the work that he did on the cross. But if you are a believer, there's an important application for us from here as well. Have you continued to have a heart attitude of repentance. We're to have that the rest of our life until the Lord takes us home. Mm. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a command for the believer for the rest of our life. But there's also 1 John, another two verses in 1 John. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3. Beloved. Oh, John loves that term. John was beloved of the Lord. And John loves those that uh, he's teaching and so on. And he calls them beloved. Beloved, we are God's children, which is tremendous news, of course. We are God's children now, and what we will be, speaking of future, when we go to be with the Lord, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's a tremendous, tremendous promise. When it says we'll, we'll be like him, we're used to seeing 
things in us that aren't like him. We see our sin, our anger, our jealousy, our, our lust, all kinds of things, bitterness and so on. But when we see him, he says, we're going to be like him. Uh, we're going to be uh, having purity of character. Oh, that's going to be tremendous. And not just that, but also like him, like him in the sense that we're going to be through with this frail body that's tending always to sin, but with what we learn in the Bible is called the glorified body, which is like Christ's resurrection Bible, a body. We're going to be like him. So what are some examples of what we will be like? Well, what he loves, we will love. And we will never be loving what he hates. Um, we will never sin. That's an exciting thought. We will never experience pain. Now, Jesus experienced pain when he came in the human body and suffered pain beyond anything any of us will go through. But in his glorified body, he has not suffered one bit of pain and never will. That's part of the curse of sin. And that's gone. And it's going to be true of us as well. We will never experience pain. And our cup of joy will be full and overflowing. We'll never have a down day. We'll never be discouraged. And another one, we will never die again. It's appointed unto man once to die. Uh, for the non-believer, the verse goes on, but after that, the judgment. For the believer, but after that, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. What a tremendous promise. But then, in verse 3, and everyone who has this hope, and everyone who thus hopes in him, the, the word hope in the New Testament is not, oh, I hope it doesn't rain today. It might and it might not, but I hope it doesn't. Hope in the New Testament is always a confident expectation, something we can be sure of. And the Bible talks about us putting our hope into something because it is sure. And so verse 3 says, everyone who thus hopes in him, that is in Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. So this is talking about that heart attitude of repentance and faith. So this purifies himself. It's not just a surface cleaning that doesn't go beyond the surface, but this is a cleansing that causes us to work on avoiding sin. If our hope is to be like Jesus someday, it will show up by avoiding sin now. And you can use the example, for instance, of an athlete. If, if your hope is or was at some time to be an Olympian athlete someday, you'll seek to be like that athlete now. If you don't seek to be like that athlete, you're not going to make it later. Uh, so that's not a totally fitting analogy for this, but it's a reminder that the one who has this hope purifies himself.
that he has this hard attitude of repentance, which is turning from and turning to. Um, I believe I put in your notes 2 Corinthians 3.18. Tremendous verse that we should always keep before us. 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's in the context, Paul talking about uh, Moses' experience on, on Mount Sinai when he saw the glory of the Lord and, and it, his face radiated and but uh, it was beginning to fade so he put a veil over his face and so I won't go into all that but verse 18 and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord that's our experience as a believer now Someday we'll see it in, in, in fullness, but right now we're beholding the glory of the Lord. Where do we behold the glory of the Lord now? In God's Word. So every day as we are reading God's Word, we are beholding the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed. God works in our heart as we are beholding the glory of God in His Word. Transforms us into the same image like we were talking about in 1 John. It transforms us into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Uh, and uh, for, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And then let's close with Psalm 119. Some wonderful verses from 119 talking about this purifying of ourself. And... Uh, Psalm 119, verses 9 and 11 are great verses to memorize. I'm so glad that when I was uh, growing up in, in vacation Bible school, I especially remember, we were taught to memorize Psalm 119, verse 9 and 11. Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's our desire with the heart attitude of repentance. If you have not repented and come to salvation, we plead with you to do that. And then as a believer, that we would be growing in this Christ-likeness, this sanctification of the believer. What a, what a blessing to have this about John the Baptist. I look forward to seeing him someday. And uh, boy, there would be all kinds of things to talk to him about. But uh, he was faithful to the Lord as we are to be. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Matthew, which presents our King, Jesus. Father, we pray that we would um, just continue to consider these things we've seen tonight and that we would uh, grow in you. We thank you for this reminder about repentance and faith. And so, Father, we pray that you would apply these things to our hearts and lives. 
and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.